Welcome to Gospel in the City this afternoon and we're going to continue our study which Sam introduced us to last week which was Exodus, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments which are still very relevant to us today and I'm just going to read now the portion that we're going to consider today and it's chapter 20 verses 1 to 3, Exodus 20, 1 to 3, you should have your hand out sir, it's a double-sided one. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Amen. Well, delighted to have Muir Casement. I am very delighted to have you. Muir is the director of Cornhill and I'm a second year student. Maybe I should just pray before Muir comes to speak. Uh, let us bow and pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your ordinances, for your commandments, which are as relevant today as when you first gave them. And Lord, as we look at your law given to your people, We pray, Father, that you might speak clearly to us, just where we're at, even in the middle of a busy week. Might we see Christ in all these things. Be with Moore as he comes to speak to us, and us as we listen. In Jesus' name, Amen. Thanks, Paul. Sorry that this is a bit back to front. Um, Apologies for the slight delay. I don't know if that says something about some idol. I don't know. But um, hopefully it's just fallen world in which we live, where uh, traffic is sometimes worse than you imagine. Um, <clears throat> after the tragic death uh, at the weekend of the American basketball player Kobe Bryant, I heard a number of people from Los Angeles say that he was an idol in the city. Now, I doubt if many people actually lived their lives worshipping Kobe Bryant, but it was interesting even just to hear the word idol used in a positive way. If, like me, you've been brought up being taught the Bible, you'll know enough to know that idolatry is not seen as a good thing. But in society at large, that's not necessarily what people think. If a man was said to idolize his wife, many women would think, I'd quite like a man like that. And so the commandment, which starts off the Ten Commandments, is one that is hard for those who aren't Christians to get their heads around. But that's hardly surprising, because it's not given to people who have no relationship with the one true God. As I hope you already realise, the Ten Commandments were not given to people to show them how to be saved and brought into relationship with God. They were given to a people who had been saved by God and brought out of slavery to live as his people in relationship with him. When God says in Exodus 20 verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, he's not speaking to the people of Egypt, 
telling them to abandon the many gods who had failed to protect them from the ten plagues. Despite all the evidence of the powerlessness of their gods, the people of Egypt were still worshipping them. They weren't rushing to join the Israelites in the wilderness to worship their God. So in Exodus 20, God addresses the people he has rescued and tells them in verse 2 of Exodus 20 why it is that they are to have no other gods before him. When God says in that verse, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. He's giving them at least two reasons why they should put him first. I struggled to find a concise way of putting it, so I'm glad that you have it written down on the sheet for you. But you'll see there that the two reasons why God's people, and that includes Christians today, are to have no other gods before him, are because firstly, God is the only one who is covenantally faithful to his people. And secondly, God is the only one who has rescued his people. Let's look at those in turn. So firstly, we should have no other gods because our God is the only one who is covenantally faithful to his people. When God says, I am the Lord your God, he's using the word which in our translations is translated as Lord, L-O-R-D in capitals. It's a name that's often transliterated from the Hebrew as Yahweh. And it's a name by which God revealed himself to Moses back in Exodus chapter 3 when he appeared to him in the burning bush. And it's the name by which he will be called throughout the Old Testament when he is describing himself or is being described in relation to his people. He is the one who has not only revealed himself to his people, but who has promised that he will be their God and they will be his people. God has bound himself to his people in a covenant which he is determined to keep no matter what. And we see throughout the history of Israel that even though the people are often faithless, God remains faithful to them. In fact, often when God speaks about his people forsaking him, he often uses the language of adultery. One of the most famous examples of that is in the book of Hosea where Hosea is told to marry a prostitute as a picture of God and his people. And when she is unfaithful to him, God says to Hosea in chapter 3, verse 1, Go show your love to your wife again, though she is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, though they turn to other gods and love the sacred raisin cakes. We may not have experienced it firsthand, but most of us have seen the devastation that is caused by adultery in a marriage. And it's something which is felt just as keenly by non-Christians as by Christians. Where a couple are exclusively committed to each other, there should be a security which allows for human flourishing. But where that exclusive bond is broken, then trust is lost confidence is shattered and so much damage can ensue and not just for the husband and wife but for children extended family and even friends God is the only one who is unfailingly committed to his people 
And that is meant to give us the security to flourish because we are completely loved and accepted by him and need to look to no one and nothing else to have our deepest needs met. But the problem is that we think there are many other people or things which can give us more than God can. In fact, the great irony of this is that the gods that we look to emanate from God himself. You've probably heard the well-known definition that an idol is a good thing which becomes a God thing. God gives us lots of good things to enjoy in this life. He blesses us with family, with friends, with work, with money, with sex, with our looks, our homes, our intelligence, things to make life more comfortable, experiences that enhance our lives. But when we see these things as an end in themselves or as the ultimate source of our happiness in life, then they are never going to satisfy us if we're Christians. I think it's important to add that qualification, if we are Christians. Because for some non-Christians, the gods they worship can provide them with some level of satisfaction. Let's face it, generally people don't become Christians because they think that they have something to lose. And if the gods they worshipped were giving them nothing, they would have nothing to lose. Some non-Christians have found significance and security in their work. They have a family who love them. And while life is not problem-free, it's really not too bad. They certainly wouldn't want to jeopardise their friendship circle or their family relationships or their job prospects by becoming a Christian. And if there is a God-shaped hole in their lives, then there are quite a lot of things to fill it with which seem to work well enough. But as I've already said, this commandment is not primarily for the benefit of the unbeliever. This is God addressing his people. And if we're Christians, then he's saying to us, I am the only one who is completely committed to you and to your ultimate good. I've given you many good things in your life, but if you start pursuing them rather than me, you're going to end up disappointed and making a mess of things because I'm the only one who can give you lasting security. That's what I want you for, to be in that lasting and secure relationship with me. And yet, it's all easier said than done, isn't it? After all, is it so wrong to want to get along with people and for them to think well of us and to like us? No, it's not. Until they want us to go against God and his word. Or until their opinion of us matters so much that we silently agree with them even when they are contradicting what we believe to be right. Is it so wrong to want to enjoy a nice holiday or have a comfortable home? No, it's not, until that holiday or the comfort of our home becomes so important to us that we have no time or energy or money for our local church or for Christian service. And of course, the problem is that if we are pursuing these good things for their own sake, 
then we will never be satisfied because there will always be something new that we can buy, some further improvement we can make to our home, some other holiday we can squeeze in or more exotic destination that we can go to. What we need to remember is that when Israel was accused of going after other gods, they generally hadn't abandoned God altogether. They were still going through the motions of worship. They still claimed to believe in Yahweh. But other things mattered more to them. And yet, these other things were ultimately very poor substitutes for the only true God. And God's people should have known that. They should have known better. They should have realized that the one relationship which mattered most in the world was their relationship with the God who had committed himself completely to them. The other thing, of course, which God's people should have remembered when they were tempted to put other gods before the true God is the second thing that I want us to notice from the introduction to this first commandment. And that is that God is the only one who has rescued his people. In Exodus 20, verse 2, God says, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. What the Israelites had just seen in recent weeks was that their God was not only covenantally faithful, but he was the God of rescue. And it was a pretty dramatic rescue, as you probably know. Pharaoh, leader of the superpower of the day, had no intention of losing a workforce which cost him practically nothing and was furthering his grand designs. But God had demonstrated his power very clearly through the ten plagues which devastated Egypt and left Pharaoh virtually begging the people to leave. God had also rescued his people at the Red Sea and in the process dealt a final judgment blow on the armies of Egypt. And so the word of God in Exodus 20 comes to a people who, against all the odds, with no resources in themselves had been freed from a miserable existence and been released from the threat of ever being taken back to slavery and who were now able to serve and worship the God who had so convincingly saved them. The 75th anniversary commemorations this week of the Holocaust were a stark reminder of how horrendous the suffering was for those victims and indeed survivors of those dark days during the Second World War. But those who were held in the Nazi concentration camps were unable to free themselves. They had to wait for troops to come in from outside to liberate them. There were more prisoners than guards, but they were effectively powerless to overthrow their oppressors. And it wasn't so different for the people of Israel and Egypt. They needed help to come from outside. But for them, it came not in the form of a liberating army, but a liberating God who is the commander of all the armies of heaven and who is able to overthrow any power that is ranged against him. For all humanity, born in sin, as the Bible says, we are in a helpless condition, utterly powerless to undo the effects of sin, utterly incapable of escaping from slavery to sin, and in a wretched condition as a result. The biggest problem, though, is that we don't realize how bad our situation is. 
We know the world's not perfect. We know there are difficulties in our own lives, but we somehow manage to persuade ourselves it's not as bad as it might be. And in fact, there's plenty of good going on, as there often is. But that cannot hide the fact that we live in a broken world where we are all heading towards death and whatever lies beyond it. The truth which God makes clear in his word is that what lies beyond will either be worse than our worst nightmares or beyond our wildest dreams. But the problem is that by nature, we are all heading towards the nightmare scenario with no power in ourselves to stop that. And that's why the gospel is such good news because it tells us of how God has intervened to rescue us, to free us from slavery to sin and to secure a wonderful eternal future for us through the perfect life, death and resurrection of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And God is the only one who can rescue us. Nothing and no one in this world can free us from the power of sin to condemn us to hell. The best that the gods of this world can do is to make life in this world less miserable. But they cannot give us anything in the world to come. So the god of significance or influence or popularity may help us feel good about ourselves here and now. But when we stand before Jesus as he judges us, our popularity score won't help us at all. And the money that we thought would bring us comfort or security or respect will evaporate in the light of the world to come. And the spouse or children or friends whom we devoted our lives to won't be able to put in a good word for us. None of the gods that we worship can save us. Only the Lord Jesus can do that. So why would we worship other gods? Why do we worship other gods? Because if we're honest, we're not much different from the people to whom God first said these words. Just as the Israelites were prone to give other gods prominence and preeminence, so we are inclined to do the same. And I think it's interesting that God in this first commandment says... You shall have no other gods, plural, before me. Because there's obviously a recognition here that there are many options in terms of substitutes for the one true God. And the things that we will idolize will not be the same for all of us. Some people can sit loose to material possessions. Others don't care about status Some are able to see sex as something good in the right context without being ruled by their sexual desires. Others are able to accept the aging process without desperately fighting to retain the youth that they idolise. I make no comment as I look around the room. And there's a danger in us as we try to highlight the many good things that may become God things, that we can easily spot the idols in the lives of others. 
but miss out our own because we don't all have the same ones. But I think there may well be another factor which this commandment recognises, and that is that we may worship many other gods at the same time. And in fact, it may be the combined effect of that worship which moves God well down the order in terms of our devotion to him. And so it's a combination of wanting comfort, valuing our leisure time, seeking significance in our work, investing heavily in our family and friendships, looking for the approval of others, securing our future, and many other things which collectively push God to the margins of our lives. So what do we do about all this if we're Christians? We know that we're supposed to worship God alone and to have no other gods before him. And yet, we so often fail to do that. Well, I think that, first off, we do need to be alert to the danger of failing to do this. And we need to call out and show up our idols for what they are. God is the only one who is committed to us in covenant faithfulness. And the only one who can rescue us from sin and death and hell. And we need to reflect more both individually and as Christians together on those God substitutes which can deflect us from truly and wholeheartedly worshipping God. I've said that often our idols may not be the same, but sometimes they are. And maybe actually that can make it nearly harder to spot them because quite often we, we gravitate towards people who share the same idols that we do. And so if our friends are just as consumed by sport or food or fitness or politics or box sets or whatever it is, um, then we'll not see any problem in it because these are the things that unite us and we're all Christians, so where's the problem? I suppose, though, the danger can be that if we actually do honestly reflect on these things and recognize that propensity in all of us to put other things in the place of God in our lives, that we we can potentially feel crushed and overwhelmed as we think of these many false gods and the ways in which we may be tempted to worship them and to give them power over us. But it's important to remember that God convicts us about these things for our good so that we turn back to him in repentance and seek his help to put him first. We need to remember that this is for our ultimate good and blessing. There can be no better way for us to live than by seeking to honour and glorify God in our lives. Within the security of that relationship where we realize that he is completely delighted in us and utterly committed to us, we can truly flourish. And it's from that place of security that we can then see all God's good gifts in their proper place. Not as the source of our happiness, but as an expression 
of the true love that God has for us and how he wants us to enjoy him as we enjoy the world he has given us and the blessings that there are within it. But as we understand that his love is utterly dependable and it's a love that promises us not only his presence, his help and his blessing in this life, But in the life to come, he promises us perfect relationship with him in his presence, enjoying him forever. Ultimately, I think the reason that God says you shall have no other gods before me to the people that he has rescued is because that's what he's rescued them for. For now, but even more so for eternity. The life to come is all about being with God And knowing him perfectly and being perfectly known by him. That's why it doesn't make sense to invest in all the false gods that there are around. Because they will all disappear. What we'll be left with is God in his completeness and perfection with us forever. In that perfect relationship that nothing else can take away from. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that as you encourage us to think about this commandment, this is for our good, not to spoil our fun or to take away from the good things in this world, but rather to fix our focus more and more upon you as the only one who is completely for us and the only one who can rescue us. And Father, we pray that as we live our lives, however imperfectly, but seeking to put you first, that others, as they look at us, may see a difference. That even though many of the things that we do may be similar, even though many of the interests we share may be the same, nonetheless, they see that our ultimate priority is you and your glory. And everything that happens in our lives, we see in relation to you and not as an end in themselves. Father, we pray you help us to help one another as we seek to be obedient to you. We cannot do it in our own strength. We need the help of your Holy Spirit. But we thank you that this is what you want for us and you want to help us in that. And so we pray you might encourage us as we seek to do this for your glory's sake. Amen.